Waterfowl podcast today. Um, I am thrilled to be getting some insight into the north because it's somewhere I've never been and I I can have a bucket list but I sort of usually just go visit my family on holiday uh, instead of somewhere I maybe haven't been yet. It's been a while since I got to go somewhere I haven't been yet. Um, the Waterfowl presents uh, Natasha Kulikowski, is that the right way? Oh, yay! Uh, the mayor of Inuvik, which is in Northwest Territories. And I'm so uh, psyched to have you on the Waterfowl Podcast. Thanks so much. And I'm psyched to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. So my questions are not specific, um, you know, about your community or government or, you know, it's pretty broad ranging. Um, I know that we do have this sort of... Um, Previously, the the Tassis Inuvik connection with uh, the fruit and veggie um, man, Mr. Rutherford, and I feel like hearing it from his son while I was picking up my kids at school and talking about how fun it is for his dad to see people who've never had a kiwi before bite into a kiwi, you know, and I just love... I remember the first time I had a fresh papaya and it was, you know, like, oh, wow, this is what it is to live here, you know, and this is what it tastes like, right, you know, and and I'm sure there's a taste that is like the, the food available that's locally, like the land food, right? Um, I haven't tried any of those foods because I haven't been there and I don't know how well they travel. Like, I know that papaya doesn't travel well either, uh, but I guess... One of the things that, and on a lesser scale, like my community used to be um, in the North Living Out Allowance line when we were remote uh, extraction, when we were just like, they used to have a plane every day to Vancouver um, because there was a lot of value being exported uh, in lumber. Um, And now we don't have any, you know, North allowance and we also don't have the mill. So we're sort of like reduced, but, um, I know that me personally, I am an aspiring tomato gardener and, uh, <laughs> I try to learn about how it is to grow food. And I know that, uh, I've heard, you know, just through CBC that in the North they're doing some kinds of those things too, like, um, domes or sea cans with lights and and growing, you know, like green vegetables so they don't have to trip them up. And this is just what we were talking about before we started recording was that that last mile funding, you know, so congratulations on your federal announcement today, where you're going to be able to get some of that covered because that is a huge concern, right? You know, like getting things to where you are is a huge part of the price. You know, I, I tend to think of it um, as a third, you know, everything's a third. So the cost of the food is a third and then the getting it to where it's going is a third. And then the labor involved in that, you know, like whether it's, um, you know, don't forget to tip your farmer or your trucker. (laughs) Anyways, um, what would you like to talk about today? Well, I don't mind touching on a few things that you've already kind of led me into it um if you don't mind just unleashing me and i'll touch on a few things there so yeah shoot it um, all right so uh just a tiny little bit of history about anubic so anubic was developed by the federal government in the 50s um to replace a another community called the clavic um because the town of clavic continues to this day to potentially flood every year um and so they put out all these uh, surveys looking for the right area that would work well to develop a new community and they landed on what was then called East Free because we're on the East Channel of the Mackenzie River and we were the third site Um, and then the federal government went about creating a little town Um, and so they had hired people from the Klavik and other communities in the Beaufort Delta to to move here and basically to mill logs and everything right here on site and go ahead and start building the town. Uh, so we officially were established, I believe, in 1958 uh, was when Anubik became the town of Anubik. Um, we 
are a predominantly indigenous population. Um, there are two main groups that live here, the Inuvaluit, who are uh, the Western Arctic Inuit people, and then the Gwich'in, uh, and who are a Dene group of people. Um, and in particularly in the community of Aklavik, um, it's a mixed community. So going back a very long time, um, there were people from both groups who lived there. And then the other 33% or so of our population is either non-Indigenous um, and other multicultural folks. Um, we have a pretty substantial Muslim population. Um, as the times have changed over the last 20 years or so, we have a, quite a large Filipino population as well. And then, of course, you know, Canadian is such a cultural mosaic that we have people from all over the place. Um, and so that's just a tiny little view of our little town. Um, I'm going go to interrupt just to ask the total population currently. Uh, about 3,300. At high points, it's been probably closer to 5,000, but with a lot of transient workers. And I think low points was only about 100 less or so. Um, because of how the community was designed to be a government town, there's a very steady population. Um, we're also the hub for the Beaufort Delta, so we serve seven other communities. For a total of about 7,000 people served. Um, but our actual physical community population is about 3,300. Um, yeah, and we are in the Western Arctic, in the Beaufort Delta. It's this beautiful, amazing place where we, you know, we have 24-hour sunshine all summer long, and then we have 24-hour darkness over over December, um, <laughs> which is, a, it's something, like you say, your bucket list, it's, put it on your list. Yeah. Probably to come in the summer one. <laughs> it's a little more pleasant. <laughs> I don't know, I but feel both, like... Both seasons are beautiful. I feel like <laughs> December rest like maybe it just speaks to like my grouchy bear attitude that I just like oh you mean I don't have to wake up because the sun's shining yes you know like I feel like that would be something that really and and maybe too I think that for me since I've moved to Tassis I do like it's different now I'm visiting my parents in Ontario but since I moved to Tassis I there's more rain there's more clouds there's less sky there's less like it's between the mountains and uh, I love it. I also just compare the ways that it's different. You know, here um, there's more sky. You see the movements. You can see the weather coming and changing. And I was better at constellations when I lived here. When I live in Tassis, I'm like, there's not enough of me to picture the whole picture. So <laughs> I feel like I would be interested to come in December one time. <laughs> well, and so, because I'm always promoting our community as well, so the first weekend in January is when we have our Inuvik Sunrise Festival, because somewhere in and around January 6th is when the sun makes its first peak back over the horizon, yeah. and so we actually have a huge community festival in which um, because we have 24-hour sunshine in the summertime, we have a special permission from the government of Canada to use our fireworks money that usually gets used for Canada Day in most communities. We get to use it for our sunrise festival because we can see the fireworks in January. Um, and so there's a huge community bonfire down by the river. We have fireworks. And then in the past few years, we've had bands, we've had family activities, a skating rink down there, like just... It's a real, the first real community gathering of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of how we kick off our, our gathering seasons. Um, and then we move into our spring here, which for us spring is still like minus 20, but it's like sunshine and you can go on long skidoo trips and you spend so much time out on the land. Um, while in other places that's like full on winter still, but. <laughs> but we consider it spring yeah it's so. starting to subside right exactly. I, yeah yeah <laughs> and the days are long and the sun is out and it's just amazing to be outside um and since you mentioned the skies i mean we live in a delta so there's lots of water around us but not a lot of high hills or anything so you can see the sky for for great distances yeah <laughs> as far as your eye can see exactly yeah. <laughs> oh that sounds amazing oh and yeah. the whole gathering season that's really you know we in Tassis don't do our uh fireworks on Canada Day either 
because of fire risk. So we do it in the rainy season in the fall at Halloween. And, you know, um, for other communities, Halloween doesn't mean fireworks. And in here in Ontario, that's not what, you know, Halloween is a different thing. Um, But for me, since I've lived in Tassis, it's Halloween is fireworks, you know, and that's... Um, the new traditions that, you know, like, and the changing of the place. Like, you have to be uh, place-based, right? Yes, totally. Yeah, Yeah. and and that's, you know, food, you know, um, what you think winter is, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I, uh, yeah. Uh, The winters that I grew up with were cold and snowy in the Great Lakes, but... The winters that my kids grow up with are just rain, right? You know, right. it's very seldom that we actually get any snow in the rainforest. Um, but it's always there on the mountains. We could hike to it. We just don't do that as much as... <laughs> it, it, you know, I used to go skiing more um, when I lived in Comox, but I'm... I don't know. I'm older now and scared to fall down. <laughs> yeah. I, I have yet to be on a snow machine, though, and I feel like I have a friend who I was just having a little play date with today, and uh, she went to Norway, maybe, Arctic Circle, but in, in Europe, and, uh, you know, snow machining is what you do for fun and it seems really cool <laughs> like, it's really fun yeah <laughs> it's a little intimidating at first of course as any new machine sport is but um once you get onto that those handlebars and you start driving the machine for yourself you'll you'll love it it's yeah it's the you have so much control on that type of travel because the entire machine moves with your your weight uh. so you don't uh, you're in control that whole time, right? It's it's yeah. a super fun experience. I hope you do get the chance because it's, uh, it, yeah. Well, and there's no roads, right? Like, it's just like, I mean, there's maybe the path of the person that went in front of you, right? Um, but this is something, like, I think about just from that little description of, like, you're, um, you're in control. Uh, this song, Jingle Bells, right? Like, Jingle Bells is a song because... People were like, oh, in the winter, we can put sled skis on our wagons and the horses can go whatever direction they want. We don't need to worry about roads, right? You know, so it sort of opens up the access to the land, right? Which is always like, I mean, we both live in sort of small, um, rural, remote places where um, land and water access and, you know, that's a big part of our culture. Right. You know, like we have to go fishing. We have to go hunting. We have, you know, like it supplements our food that we bring in. And uh, also it's, you know, what we are into. We we like to, (laughs) we like to be out there. Right. You know, like at least most people, you know, I I know that um, that's the appeal. Right. Again, with that place based, you know, um, for us, like we can, I can hop on, say my skidoo from here, and I am off of roads within five minutes. Like I'm from my front door. I don't have to drive a trailer and my skidoo out anywhere. It's literally like a left turn and straight up, and I'm down onto the river. Right? Like yeah. so there's that. It's so accessible. It's yeah. even more accessible than like say in our capital city in the territory of Yellowknife. You have to do that driving away to get to the place. Yeah. Where here it's 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 your front door out into the bush, right? So yeah, it's phenomenal in that way. Yeah, it's right um, in your backyard, kind of. Right? Totally. Yeah. And I'm lucky enough. Um, I've had opportunity over the years, and I own uh, I'm in a partnership and own a cabin, and so I have. Uh, in the wintertime, we have ice road or skidoo access, and in the summertime, it's by boat. Um, but just to touch a little bit on the food security stuff that we've already kind of been theming so far, I've picked 12 pounds of blueberries in the last two weekends just around my cabin. Like, I literally step out the stairs, and I'm into the blueberry patches, right? Like, it's amazing because I do live in such a rural remote part of Canada that there isn't construction everywhere or you know like it's just right there well and the the Um, land provides that right you know like I mean yes 
nobody has a kiwi unless it's brought in, which is true for everywhere except Australia. I mean, I have a kiwi, I have a kiwi bush in my front yard, but I've never got it to produce a kiwi yet. So, you know, (laughs) like, but I keep praying and hoping, but that's the thing about the, um, the wild lands and the, the land providing the food, right? Like, I mean, I do tend to focus on grocery store food and, um, you know, like you mentioned, diapers, formula, coffee, the regular standard imported products that we have grown to become accustomed to in our lives. But, I mean, blueberries don't need to be cultivated. They exist, right? The bears cultivate them. It's part of the wild life that we enjoy as uh, being, like, you know, I find a lot of the rural and remote discussions are like what we don't have. Right. Which is not how I always want to approach things, because I just feel like then I become the squeaky wheel that's like, well, what about this? And oh, well, you know, let's steal from Peter to pay Paul kind of thing, because like you can you can choose a rec center or a fire hall, but you can't have both, you know. Right. (laughs) But I I do love to first say, but we have all the blueberries you are willing to pick. Right. You know, or we have, you know, salmon that you know, we'll feed your whole family or whatever, right? You know, like, yeah. and, and that, the pride in that, right? Like, you know, when I pick my own blueberries, it's way more prideful than when I just buy them at the store. 100%. And they taste better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, well, and they're just like part of, uh, like, I guess, again, that's like the anthropogenic stuff, right? Where it's like, there's the things that we as humans put our power and influence on and then there's the things that we accept like uh i've heard it said that salmon berries are a gift from the creator and i feel like that's just like a kind of yellow blackberry that grows in in tassis and until i moved there i didn't know about that kind of berry you know because it didn't exist to me but and the the traditional people uh mount mushalat who are is tassis uh, territory um they don't even celebrate the salmon berry bush for the berries which I feel like are so beautiful um and delicious and early in the spring um they cut the stalks and eat the sticks the early stems and so these are like you know what I see as value is like oh just dig a little deeper you know there's so much more right yeah for sure and we have so um just since we're on the berries so we have something called upcooks or cloudberries i think they have them in northern newfoundland as well um which grow um, north of anubic and south of anubic both uh which are traditionally a very popular berry as well and then in the fall time we'll have cranberries too so i mean the the land is so abundant even in those things it's it's like you say it's just phenomenal to see those things and then um certainly fishing in the area is big we have caribou and moose um and so subsistence hunting is still a reality in the in our area um and then also in july of every year the indigenous people go and they hunt beluga whales as well and so when you're asking about like a particular specialty of the area or whatever muktuk is definitely one that you want to try when you're in the Beaufort delta um and that is the whale blubber of the beluga whale um it is a, it's a delicacy to some it's a staple to um, the indigenous folks of the area mm-hmm. and um, it is one of those things that I can personally say I have tasted I could eat if I needed to eat it to survive but I leave it for those who enjoy it more <laughs> yeah so. well that's the thing about when in Rome right you know yeah. <laughs> I I'm sure there's some things on the Roman menu that I would pass on but I do want to try everything you know I remember this is sort of like a whole nother um, dead end road in the food uh, food world but once upon a time I lived in East Africa and they have this restaurant there called Carnivore and that's where you can go and eat a zebra or whatever right like things oh, wow. that are yeah <laughs> and that's like the whole you know it's a, a playground slash bar for adults right you know and 
when you are traveling there and you go to this club, you know, it's the whole eating these endangered species and again, zebras aren't endangered and I don't know about beluga whales, but I, you know, yeah, it's, it's part of the culture, like bushmeat, you know, these are, um, and, and also culture of like wanting to have these authentic experiences right you know and like I mean the best part of me being in Nairobi wasn't going to carnivore it was this really delicious um ice cream that they had there which you know like I guess maybe that speaks to like some uh Italian um uh, yeah you know like yeah gelato and just like the the good uh, graze of the cattle because there there is definitely is like um the the people who the kenyan people uh you know cattle is a currency just like in india you know it's um yeah it's very valuable and and i think that that's like the same way that beluga would be or you know in my area salmon you know like they would trade, you know, salmon and ooligan oil and berries and oil and, you know, like other for other things, too, that weren't food things that were like, oh, well, you have the kind of mineral that I like for my face, like to make makeup like for pretty. Right. You know? right. <laughs> like There'd be like trading, you know, sort of essential things for non-essential things. But like the joys, the joys are the essential parts. Right. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Food can be, you know, we, I think a lot about how being at the end of the road or in your case, you know, a boat ride or a plane ride um, can be challenging for bringing food in in the last mile and and getting those like dollars to pay for the petrol to bring the food to the places where it's going to be eaten. Um, But I'm so glad that we could talk about the things that we've tried that, you know, are are rare and special, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, the the, uh, the Inuit and the Gwich, or the Inuvialuit and the Gwich'in people are proud of those things, and so being able to partake in that with them is part of, well, I guess being culturally immersed in our community. Like, there's no, there's no ju- judgment in that way. It's more, it's a, we have this, let's share it, mm-hmm. and which is an amazing, it's a, a Living in Anubic is different than anywhere else that I have experienced um, in relationships like that, in that everyone lives together, we play together, we work together, mm-hmm. um, and so, and we share together, and we are a community all together. And so we eat together, yeah. That's, yeah, we do it all. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, the domes and greenhouses and stuff, so we have a giant um, community greenhouse here in Anubic that used to be um, an old curling arena. And what they did was uh, they switched out the roof for a clear roof um, and then they built plots with inside so community members could pay for a plot and then garden all summer long of course with the 24-hour sunshine the growing period is while the season is short you make up all that extra time by having it sunny for 24 hours right um, and in the past few years the greenhouse has started to do uh, weekly veggie boxes for purchase as well as just general sales of the things that are growing inside. And so they found a way um, not only to give people a recreational gardening experience, but also to actually kind of monetize it locally um, and offer ways for people to get, <clears throat> excuse me, fruits and vegetables that are grown right here in Anubek that don't have, you know, they weren't picked three weeks ago or a month ago green, and now they're starting to turn red once they arrive. Um, it's just amazing. And then uh, we do have a recently opened hydroponics center that was built inside of a sea can, um, also associated with the greenhouse here in town. And so, um, I mean, it's just things are getting more and more innovative as the world continues to get more and more innovative. And uh, and it's really cool. Like, I hope that the hydroponics thing can work out in that we could have fresh lettuce in town all winter. That would be amazing. Um, I don't know if it will or how that looks, but I'm sure that someone over there is working on it, mm-hmm. right? Well, and so. it's like these systems, right? Like I know that um, I have a friend who uh, whose parents, he grew up on a, a trout farm maybe, and he was like, okay, so aquaponics, if we got the, the, 
the ponds with the fish and the poop of the fish and the nutrients for the lettuce. And like, that's something that too, that I've seen in, um, some of the, uh, aquaculture studies. I've seen like a lot of, um, caviar farms and stuff because it takes like eight years to grow a sturgeon so that it can have the eggs for caviar and that's eight years of lettuce that you can be growing from the sort of waste products of the fish in the midterm right so it's just sort of like diversifying your revenue streams and that like you said um we're innovative because we have to be because that's pivoting like we were already isolated during the, before the yeah. pandemic right you know and we were already you know like um engaging with um the land to give us our lives right you know and we were already you know you can't teach hunger right you know you you have to uh you have to be plucky you know and that's something where like I've I found that with the pandemic Tassos has gotten more like before what was considered a negative of our small population and you know our you know remoteness and not being able to access hospital blah 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 now you know we have our schools didn't really close you know they closed for a little bit there during March but our schools are small enough that they continued to function and so there was a lot of um, quick pivoting, you know, like we were sort of always ready for disaster, which, you know, it's maybe that's just a, a Pacific ring of fire thing because of tsunamis and that sort of thing, um, or earthquakes, etc. But maybe it's just because we rely on each other. We know our neighbors. We know who needs help. We know who, you know, will be the helpers <laughs> and we, right yeah. yeah yeah and I mean you and I have been managed to connect a few times on things where we realize that even though we're in such different communities that we relate on so many things and so uh, the preparedness thing I mean so we uh, uh, Inuvik is at the end of the Dempster Highway right so we have road service for most of the year but in both um the spring and fall seasons the road closes and so that's when we we know we become isolated um and so twice a year everyone does their big stock up on whatever they need uh and then they're prepared i mean the grocery stores still have everything that you truly need um but you kind of set yourself up because you know prices are going to go up and everything so when covid came around and everyone down south was freaking out about toilet paper and whatever else everyone here was like well i got three months worth of toilet paper we already stocked up yeah (laughs) we do this twice a year like we're ready yeah (laughs) and that's that's how we feel like we were already ahead in that way right like we were already sort of some people who don't like rely on like i mean now that i'm visiting my parents i'm like oh it's amazing that i can just go to the grocery store whenever and buy a cucumber whenever you know but like and it always tastes good and it's never mushy (laughs) (laughs) well and and living in tassis you know like we would maybe buy groceries every three weeks. And so the first week you get cucumbers, the second week you get carrots, and the third week you get canned food, right? You know, and and then you resupply again, you know, or or you just like, and this is like a thing too, where we're going to sort of move away from food and onto some climate stuff, because that's mainly where we've met each other before in these um, Zoom climate groups and stuff, um, is the is the ways that like when our power goes out for whatever reason wind uh, you know uh, sometimes uh, sometimes it's industrial you know <laughs> so it kind of does it to ourselves but um everyone's really concerned about their freezers holding right and i know that uh you know there's a lot of remote communities who sort of rely on the sort of diesel backups and like recently, uh, the industry forgot to retract the boom pole and pulled down the hydro lines. And so people in our community who have like um, breathing apparatus weren't able to breathe at night with their machines because wow. they didn't have electricity. And like, you know, things happen. But because we are prepared for that, that means like, like I went to an environment meeting 
on a 1950s generator that is in the municipal hall. There was no power in the building. There was no lights, but my computer had battery and the generator made the internet work. So I was able, but it seems so ironic to me, right? It seems yeah. so like, well, I'm so glad that this diesel generator is here so that I could participate so that I could talk about how ironic it is. Right. <laughs> totally. And we still run, um, so like our, the power in Inuvik is um, operated by the NTPC, the Northwest Territories Power Corporation. Um, and we uh, still run on generators, mostly supplied by either liquid natural gas or liquefied propane um, and with diesel backup. For about 20 years, it was on a natural gas supply that was local, but that supply is watered out. Um, and so our, we are still on limited supply for heating homes, but at the actual power corp, they're, they're doing the alternatives at this point. But the diesel is always there as the backup. Yeah. Um, so just, uh, I mean, talk about power outages. We had a scheduled outage from Sunday to Monday night for seven hours. Um, because we're doing utilidor work, which is a whole other story, but that's our plumbing and sewage system in town. Um, and so we actually had to turn off basically the whole town's power in order to do that work. Uh, and you're right, a lot of people were freaking out because they're like, oh my, everything's going to melt. And, you know, it's also an opportunity to educate people that if you leave your freezer door closed, even for seven hours, everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> right? I mean, Just don't go opening it every five minutes. Everything <laughs> about what we do as politicians, I feel like, is public education. You know, like, I mean, and, and maybe that's just me, like, and, you know, that's my artist showing where I'm just like trying to, I don't get it. Well, yeah, it's supposed to ask questions. You're, it's not, it's not, there's nothing to get. It's just about like understanding why we don't open the door. Yeah. Right. You know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a bit of an anomaly to have one for that long, but we certainly have, uh, it's been better in the last few years, but we have probably consistent power outages, or I shouldn't say consistent, sporadic power outages for short amounts of time, but almost monthly, right? Uh, of course, always worse in the winter when it's more precarious to not have power, um, but but it's, it's not uncommon to have a power outage. So um, again, people, a lot of people are set up for that. Things like um, the community rec center, the hospital, even here at Town Hall, we all have backup power, um, uh, which, yeah, is just basically a necessity, right? We're not on a big grid that gets fed from elsewhere. Everything is produced right here. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, so yeah, it's um, it's interesting when when the federal government talks about getting northern communities off of diesel, um, but. The power corporation stands by the fact that diesel is the only good backup to everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Anubic, we do have a wind project coming, a single um, wind turbine, um, which is by the time it's built, I think will be 10 years from conception to operation, which I mean, that's fine. It takes 10 years to get through all the red tape, I guess. Um, and that, <laughs> that generator will actually um, power a battery at the um, at the uh, power corp that will that can be used for for energy. Um, so they've got multiple systems that they're trying out, and it's good to see that they are doing some some of the sustainable systems. There's quite a bit of solar happening in town. Uh, a couple years ago, one of the local indigenous groups received funding and partnered with a company out of the Yukon. And they came and did 35 households. Um, and then also, I think they did five solar arrays at various businesses around town. And so there is a, a good uh, a good portion of that happening. I mean, people are... You have to be innovative, right? Like we said, um, a lot of people have moved to pellet boilers as either a, a full-time or a backup system. And there's actually a company, because of the need then, who have literally like a grain truck and they go and they deliver pellets and stuff, right? So it's become like a wholesale pellet business as well for someone. So economic diversity there, right? Like there's, 
I could put together a list and there's probably 40 or 50 active things that are happening in town where people are trying to save money and energy because those are the two most, like, energy is the most expensive thing in our community, right? Um, we are thankfully subsidized by the GNWT, but um, I think an average home in the middle of winter is probably looking at a six or $700 power bill plus a $900 to $1,500 gas bill. And then you've got your $200 internet and, you know, your cable and whatever else on top of that. Like, it's very expensive to, to live in the north. Of course, we do get paid a little more and we get some northern allowance and stuff like that. But it all, it, it's you don't a make a funny hand over fist, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand how... You know, the allowance is there because it's more expensive, right? You know, and how, and I, I know that, um, I know this from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities thing that we're on, that your cardboard to pellets program, the pilot that you have there is, you know, I'm jealous because our cardboard takes a trip, you know, and I just feel like, no, we need to use what we have, you know, and, and I just, you know, um, having like you said that um business for someone right like we we are having a hard time attracting people to our community who don't already bring their jobs with them you know and uh so you know you mentioned the internet bill you know like that as we get better internet on the rural parts of the island then we can sort of attract more people who do gig work but And, you know, like I worked from home before the pandemic, but now I work from home more. And, uh, and I also see how that's like, you know, there's the, you know, it's always a hierarchy of needs, right? You know, so if you have food and water, then you'll worry about heat and shelter. And if you have those things, then you can worry about jobs and internet and childcare and right. what a culture, you know, <laughs> like that always seems to be the very basis of uh, w- what we try to do with each other, for each other, you know, and um, yeah, I guess I just feel like having our waste resources hubbed creates like we can't get someone to their medical treatment but we are sure giving a nice ride to the cardboard, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and see, here, right now, the cardboard doesn't even go for a ride. It just goes in the landfill. Mm. So there's, because, um, the, I mean, the next closest city is Whitehorse, right? And that's a 16-hour drive. Um, so there's no hauling thing. Like, there is a little bit of back hauling, but not for stuff like that. Um and so the cardboard to pellet, I know that it, it interests you a lot, and it's still in the pilot project stage. My understanding is it has moved forward a little bit in that they were able to do all the testing just pre-pandemic, and they, uh, I believe, received a bunch of that testing back. And so what they're looking at now is that the, the potential is there. There is a local um, private partnership that is probably going to take it on and what it would be is industrial burn pellets um not not household um but i mean that's still substituting somewhere else right so that Mm -hmm. would be amazing um well it's sort of creating something out of nothing right you know absolutely again yeah Yeah. and like we have the aurora research center here which is a part of aurora college um and so it's through ari or the aurora research institute that um, the pellet project actually happened so it's it's also someone's education and project and you know whether I don't know if it's a master's student or what it is but it's their it's their education project as well mm-hmm. um, so that's really cool I just when you mentioned internet um, I just wanted to touch on so another amazing innovative industry that we have here in Manubik is the ground satellite stations which um there's two of them. There's the Inuvik Satellite Station facility, which is owned by the government of Canada. And then there's the Canadian station, Satellite Ground Station Inuvik. Sorry, they're both acronyms. Um, and that's privately owned. Um, and so these are places with those giant, like 13 meter satellite dishes that 
take information from satellites, polar orbiting satellites, and then transfer it down south. So because the companies who do this type of work were looking at bringing this work to Anubik because we're perfectly situated on the planet to receive information, um, the call came up from industry to government, including the municipal government, to advocate for a, for a fiber line so that they could do the data transfer in a way that was feasible because what was happening is they were downloading the information, putting it on a stick or a Terra drive or whatever, and literally like mailing it down south. So we do have that. We have the Mackenzie Valley Fiber Line, um, which is amazing because it gives us an Anubic fantastic internet, better than many people in Ottawa and stuff even, right? Like. Um, and it's because of an industry drive that we got that here. Otherwise, we would still probably be in the same boat as a lot of the rest of rural Canada and where we'd be fighting to get better service all the time. Well, and so. it's it's not only because of the industry-driven initiative. It's because you're perfectly situated on the planet. You know? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to make it so, like, woo-woo, juju, but, you know, it's, it's just, like, about it was time, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, we need to download our information from space, and it's coming to you first. <laughs> yeah. So now, because of that, and because of the internet, like, we're going to get an internet exchange point here in Anubek, which makes download and upload speeds even better for people here, but also when the rest of the communities surrounding us get their internet upgraded, it'll make things faster for them. There's talk of like data stations and stuff like that, which is probably way down the line. But I mean, there's potential for a lot. And the work that happens isn't, uh, how do you say it? It's not as invasive as say oil and gas. It ain't extractive. Right? Well, well, and it's, I mean, there's 25, 26 satellites out there right now between the two sites, and the bush grows all around them, the, you know, like there's, you could probably pick blueberries and cranberries right beside the satellite itself, so the the footprint of the sites, while while there are roads that are in the dishes themselves, environmentally it's far less impactful than, you know, so many other resource extractions that, that do happen in the north and that potentially could because we do still sit on hundreds of trillions of liters of oil and gas in the north um, that at some point we assume people will try to access again right so mm-hmm. yeah it, it's an opportunity for industry without um, that huge environmental impact immediate well and that's like the like in my last report to council in July, I was talking with the climate person um, who's doing climate justice study and, uh, you know, talking about the history of our town as a t- timber um, and then sort of evolving into now we're like a salmon fishing place where, you know, people I months when I was waitressing, I remember this person said, oh, I've been coming here every year from France for 30 years. So he's seen the town change because this is like the thing about like being the best place you can fly fish, you know? And, um, and so my sort of takeaway was like, yes, timber, trees, yeah, lumber, yes, fish, salmon, tourism, yeah, you know, and you were mentioning the machine, um, sports, right? You know, and I'm, part of this group that's the unity trail so we're trying to get a quad trail built to the next village over and it's been 30 years in the making so we've been just wow. we want a co- connecting road you know so we're like yeah quad trail whatever like we just want to be able to not have a dead end and have a loop you know but right. it's it's now we've had to, now they're like oh you're not approved it's too steep we're like okay back to the drawing board another hundred thousand dollars to you know wow. root this st- and it's it's been um disappointing for me um but because i'm the secretary treasurer of the society i'm the one fielding the interest who people are like emailing me or um facebook messaging me and they're like oh when is the trail gonna be complete and i'm like any minute now you know (laughs) and like we want your tourism you know because from like my point of view um fishing tourism is great but quad trail tourism isn't extractive you know and and we have that um like we do have salmon enhancement projects that uh we do 
But, you know, there's sort of the wild farmed equation and uh, we want to be food secure, but we want to also value that wild land because it's like you said, the blueberries taste better, right? You know, it, it wasn't picked three weeks ago. And then, you know, there's a lot of spillage with the tran- transporting of stuff. And- oh, 100%. Yeah. The, the other thing we run into in our grocery stores here, and it's like we do have a climate action group from the high school. And so when Greta Thunberg ter- took up her initial um, strike the there, future, yeah. they were quite active. And um, I was, I mean, because I'm in the position I'm in, I was able to facil- facilitate a meeting between the students and the two grocery store managers to kind of, so they can ask their questions right to where they're coming from. Because we have a, a big issue here. I, I actually made an Instagram post a couple weeks ago. Like I bought $160 worth of vegetables and I got to use one reusable bag and that was for the three avocados I bought. Everything else either comes in plastic or is wrapped in plastic. And so how do you, as an individual, private homeowner, whatever, how do you try to reduce your waste on a in any kind of way when you simply can't buy anything that doesn't come in garbage like mm-hmm. and it's a part of it i understand it takes an additional seven to ten days to get groceries here from down south but there's got to be somewhere in the system that that works to make it better or do the big i don't know does big veggie need to like look <laughs> at using compostable plastics or like you know what is the what are the ways that, that the the market can work with helping people to reduce? Because it's not, we do whatever we can and we can't change it, right? Like, it's very frustrating to... Well, it's a non-choice. Have no choice. Yeah, it's, it's not really a choice because you don't want to not have um, food, right? You know, yeah. to, um, but you also, you know, like it's to... to and, and this is something that in Europe they're doing more of where like the companies that create like the plastic manufacturing need to be the ones sort of in charge of recycling and also with like right to repair legislation that is a lot more popular in Europe where they don't have as much raw land to landfill and they don't right. have as much resources to extract because it's already been extracted 500 years ago. And, you know, so there's a... It's, it's hard to change the minds, right? You know, so, um, you know, all old habits die hard. And I know that for me, it was like when I became a parent, I was like, oh, I thought I would never use disposable diapers, but my quality of life is sort of like, it, it was a, a negotiation, right, with myself. And and I've always pretty been pretty interested in, um, I don't know, climate or environmental things because I just feel like there's the baseline, you know, and if we can't live on the land, then we can't live in our houses either, you know, and, and so, uh, I know that we just had a pilot, a compost pilot so that we could try to reduce some of our waste to landfill, but it was deemed unsuccessful because in order for it to be successful, we needed to have all community buy-in and having people rely on their own cars to bring their own compost to the sea can and to open the sea can door and to dump it in and then to turn the thing and to measure it and put the pellets in and it was just like independent onus right you know like right. is what you're yeah. sort of talking about too where it's like i want to do the right thing but you're not making it easy for me yeah for sure <laughs> yeah yeah and then um like <laughs> when i go down south and i always say down south because to me anything lower than the 60th parallel is south, right? So, like, my folks live in Edmonton, so that's usually my down south. Um, But, like, when I walk into a grocery store down there and the entire produce section is just, like, the naked vegetables, (laughs) I'm, like, a little dancy ballet woman (laughs) in the aisles (laughs) with my own reusable bags that I carry with me even when I'm traveling because I refuse to use plastic that I don't have to. Yeah. Right? And then, like, the, the one that always sticks out in my mind is going to the mushrooms, and there's loose mushrooms. <laughs> and they can go in a paper bag, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Loose mushrooms. Amazing. Yeah. And this is, like, the thing, too. Like, I never, before I lived in Tassis, 
I didn't get as many boxes, but because the journey to Tassus is so back and forth and I've broken my milk jug more than once. So now it's like, we're gonna take the cardboard boxes from the grocery store that they prop underneath the bananas. And you know, like we, oh no ma'am, you can't take those. That's part of the display. No, no, I need these. <laughs> grocery stores here do actually at both of them is they they ask you bag or box and they they keep a stack of boxes for people to use all the time yeah um and quite a few years ago the government of the northwest territories put in a plastic bag um fee so it's 25 cents a bag has been for years and most of the stores also offer like a dollar or two dollar reusable bag right and i would say it's probably 50 50 when you go in the grocery store people who are carrying their own bags or people who still ask for a plastic bag well and plastic uh, bags is, have uses too like i mean yeah. i think about doggy bags i don't know if that's a thing there but i know that oh, yeah. there's sort of like a, the tourists and the locals attitude about it you know and uh and also too you know like if you get your 25 cent bag that you carry your vegetables home in then you can reuse it to be your like bin catcher so you don't oh, yeah. you don't buy the glad bags you know or whatever right yeah you know, like i i guess that's just me always trying to find well this is something that i don't want anymore what can i do with it <laughs> that's right oh yeah like on so mushrooms because here you have to buy mushrooms in a little plastic container that's wrapped in saran wrap mm-hmm. so i have all these mushroom containers everywhere right like mm-hmm. so I, and i was like literally saying like what am i ever going to do with these and then this weekend at the cabin did a oil change and whatever on our wood splitter and what did i use to mm-hmm. contain all the oil yeah. mushroom container <laughs> i have a lot of those let's use yeah. that <laughs> When I was growing up, my grandparents used to put everything in cottage cheese and sour cream containers, right? Those yep. were the, they got used for everything. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, it's, recycling has been around for a long time in the way of re, or I guess reusing. Yeah. Recycling, well, and that's right? like coming to the thrift of things, right? Like where um, it's not about having an industry to take it away for you, right? Like how yeah. the recycling industry is currently you know like I mean um it's it's more of like I'll keep this around here for later I, I've heard about the um yellow knife dump for that where like people go oh, yeah. and they're like oh well this is the boots where you put your boots when you're done with them and someone else will take them you know and I just yeah. feel like I mean I do I mean I'm a sucker for those sort of like stories where one man's trash is another man's treasure and where we can like find value in those things that we think have no value right because that's you know like it's not just the mushrooms in the container that has value it's also having somewhere to put your oil change oil right you know that's right yeah the other shoulder values totally yeah and so we at our dump we do have a free store which is where you can drop stuff off that's you know still usable just not useful to you um and through parts of the year we allow scavenging or, you know, salvaging, I guess. Um, but in the high summer months, which is when it would be most popular, is also bear season. So often, like this year and last year, both we had to put a stop to it because of the dangers to human life, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, we had we a... have grizzly bears, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they get mad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know that in our community there was a lot of small dogs and even large dogs um, that were attacked by wolves because the pandemic had people staying in their homes and so then it was just like okay you know Fido go outside and do your business and come back and you know and then the wolves sort of worked together as a pack and yeah I mean it was a lot of there was like you know people's for babies that were lost and some that were saved but still you know uh, actually a fellow counselor of mine was just talking about how she has like a 10 grand vet bill because somebody threw a corn cob and then their dog ate that you know and it's just again like valuing that corn cob as compost instead of just refuse right you know and right. sort of like having having the mechanisms and it's not always systems, it's sometimes individuals, like you said, private industry that are going to take over the cardboard thing or whatever, right? Like it, yeah. it's um, making people work for people, right? You know, and, and other things too, like um, it's not, you know, I don't begrudge the bears for wanting to have their share too, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we are after all in their home. Yeah, the, and the wolves, right? Like this is the thing about like I don't uh it is sad, of course, and I know that um people you know have a lot of different kinds of relationships with animals, right? You know, when I moved to Tassis and I planted a raspberry bush and the bears eating the raspberries instead of me and I'm hiding in my house and I'm like, you know, meter away from the bear but in my house in my bed looking through the window at it and with my small child and I'm like I'm like oh I can't believe I'm gonna pray you know I thought I was I thought that was like a thing that I only did when I was a child and I didn't believe in logic but like here I am being like okay just take the berries and go and then like it became like okay we have a dog we have a chicken we have a a pellet gun, you know, I've been lectured by my neighbor who's like, oh, you can't shoot pellets into a bear. Then they'll have like pellets in their hide. And I'm like, they won't come back, you know? <laughs> so it's like fighting for territory, right? Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left on the podcast. We're at 55 minutes. Do you have anything else you want to say? If you do ever get the chance to come up, make sure you look me up. I will. Um, I will. I don't plan on going anywhere. So, um, COVID-wise, borders I think are still sort of closed. But uh, you know, once the world starts to open up, we'd be happy to have you. So come on up. It's only you know probably a three-day drive for you. So yeah. Well, I might fly. You know, just because. Okay. Uh, There's always that option. Yeah. Well, and and I do really feel like, uh, you know. There's also boats, you know. I know that one of the things, like, with us, it was like, oh, there's a fire on the one and only road out of town. Well, I guess if we're going to evacuate the entire town, we'll have to get a boat to come because we do have ocean access, right? So, like, not only, you know, doubling down on the things that we know. Like, oh, we're at the end of the road, the Dempster Highway. Oh, go, um, the Tree to Sea Road, right? Like, the Gold River Highway, whatever. The, the girl... The, when the road stops, then you keep going on the gravel. And then when there's nowhere else to go, then you're there, right? So my invitation is to you to come see me in Tassas sometime too, if you are down south. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed talking with you because it's so educational and I really would like to get to the north one day. Um, and I just sort of feel like inspired by the ways that we were, um, able to deal with COVID in terms of like that we were already trying whatever would work, right? You know, we were already like looking for uh, unextractive industries, right? You know, or we yeah. were already sort of like trying to be um, aware of landfill, last mile costs of food, you know, like these sorts of things that maybe other communities don't think about as much, right? You know, like there's there's definitely the haves and the have-nots and they don't understand each other's problems, right? You know, yeah, and, sure. but the other people who are maybe in like the same uh, remote men- mindset do understand, you know, and it's sort of just like meeting people where they're at. And I know that um, with the small community work that I've been doing, because that's why I sort of started this podcast, was just to understand what other small communities are doing and what is sort of what we have the capacity for and how we can, you know, like spend every dollar three times, right? Like by moving um, it into our communities and, and, and helping us thrive, right? Because that's, I don't know, I I find it so interesting that it's like a community that the federal government made, you know? I just like... I guess maybe that's because I think about how we need the federal government to help us stay a community, you know, and we sort of like seen people leave and we've like went from 3000 to 300. And every time I talked to like, I was just talking to my neighbor here and he was like, well, why does a town of 300 need a deputy mayor? And I'm like, because we still have road, sewer and water because 300 people still live here because, you know, and I like, I hate the idea that I feel like, having to justify that I want good governance as a citizen. And so I have to be that. And it's a journey, obviously. (laughs) I'm learning a lot. (laughs) And thank you for teaching me. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I, um, I really, I don't know how long you've lived in the North or how long you've been the mayor, but you're 
Bang up job. I, I can't wait to ride a snowmobile. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. And it's been 20 years and three years as mayor. So. Oh, well, very good. So this is yeah. uh, this is your first term then? Yes. As mayor. Yeah. 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 Well, way to go. Awesome. Yeah, thank I'm you. so glad that uh, we're having that like 2018 connection, right? It's yeah. a big year. Yeah. It was. It was a great year. Yeah. All right. Well, so, all right. thank you so much and have a really nice day. And thanks for being on the Waterfowl podcast because, you know, water and fowl or whatever, you know, like it's all just, um, it's all part of the flock, right? You know, like there's like the sort of flying beef.